This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Welcome to The Cartographers, where we map the changing cultural landscape for 21st century Christian leaders. Expect thoughtful conversations with hosts Bryce and Ashley Hales, a pastor and PhD, along with their guests, to help you navigate a changing cultural landscape. Listen in. Well, welcome back to the Cartographers. Today we are talking about the ways in which people are leaving the church and a lot of reasons that people leave and also reasons that people join has to do with loneliness. So today we are joined by Justin Whitmail Early. He's a lawyer, an author, and speaker from Richmond, Virginia. He has authored the book, The Common Rule, Habits of the Household, and the book that we're talking about today, Made for People, Why We Drift into Loneliness and How to Fight for Friendship. So thank you so much for being with us today, Justin. I'm thrilled to be here, Ashley. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. So you've written on, you know, spiritual practices for individuals, for family life. Just tell us how this project fits with those to kind of orient this discussion. I love that question. Yeah, my first book, The Common Rule, was about looking at habits as spiritual disciplines and particularly looking at our schedule and technology habits as ways that were spiritually malformed. And I propose in that in book four daily and four weekly habits. And one of those weekly habits was spending an hour in conversation with a friend. And what I was trying to do in my life at the time and for other people was to kind of point us to the fact that the drift of American life is to become busier people who used to have friends. And if you don't fight for a rule of life or the spiritual discipline, I would call it, of friendship and community, you will end up lonely and isolated and hidden. Um, That was in 2018 that I was writing that book. This was before I had ever heard of the epidemic of loneliness. This was before I ever knew that the American lifespan was going down because of loneliness and social isolation. It was just a felt need in my life and a discipline I felt everybody should practice. A lot has changed since just that five years ago when I first read about that habit, but it was there. And five years later, I thought this needs to be its own book because this is urgent for the church. It's interesting you say that. I remember about that time frame preaching, uh, I'm a pastor preaching a sermon talking about friendship and relationships. And I think it was the week after I preached that sermon that the Washington Post, no, 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 it was the, sorry, it was the Boston Globe, I think, released the this article that I've quoted many times since. The headline was something like, um, middle-aged men are, are, are so lonely that the health risk is twice as severe as like uh, smoking and heart disease. I remember and this. That was yes. the first thing that sort of like tipped me off to like, th- yeah, there's something really big going on here. Uh, I-, I wonder if, um, you know, we're going to get into some of the specifics of your book, but could you just talk to us about like, 
why is it so hard for us to make friends right now? It, it, has it always been that difficult for middle-aged adults? I mean, it seems like we have all of the technology in place. <laughs> yeah. Why are yeah. we having such a hard time making friends? Yeah, I would go in chronological order at this because I think the recent statistics are empirically showing what has always been an enduring spiritual truth, which is so helpful when that when when you know when you have the world and the New York Times blaring like, hey, empirically we found out that people wither inside and outside if they're not in deep relationships with other people. And it's just one of those moments where you can be like, yes, it's true. We ag agree because Genesis told us so. And that's why this all makes sense. So I would start chronologically and, and look at the story of relationship in the Bible. And I just say two things about that. Like one, God made us for people. And two, the signs of the fall are relational before they're anything else. And so just those one and two really quickly, you know, God's saying good, good, good over and over as he makes the world. And then he makes Adam and Eve and he says, very good. So you have this refrain of good happening. And then when you go to Genesis 2 and the story sort of restarts in another form of poetry, going back through the creation story, and you have God looking at Adam before Eve is created and saying, it's not good that you're alone, which for you know anyone who's paying attention, particularly in the Hebrew, that not good is suddenly a record scratch. It's very strange because God was just chanting almost good, good, good. And so you have a big flashing red light that the scriptures, God is telling us something. And that is that it's possible for Adam to be not good in the Garden of Eden with God, right? He is, he is with God. He's created by God. He's in the Eden before the fall. And something is not good because he's lonely. He's alone. And this is just such an important theological concept. To put it a little, maybe a little bit edgy that sounds uh, like, wait, is that true? I, I would say you can be lonely with God. And the reason that's true is not because God is inadequate. It's because God is so generous that he made us such that we can't experience him the way we were made to experience him until we experience him alongside others. And that's the magic that you see at the end of Genesis 2 when Adam and Eve are, are naked and unashamed. I either they're seen fully, they're known fully, they're vulnerable to each other and to God before God, but they're fully loved. So to be known and loved by others and God is the goal of human existence. And it's exactly what starts to break apart in Genesis 2, where the sin brings fig leaves and hiding before it brings anything else, as, we, as in we hide from each other and we hide from God. And so I think it's just really important to note, this has always been the case, okay? You know, we have always needed the, the power of the Holy Spirit and the call of God to actually re-enter into relationship with each other by re-entering into relationship with God. And the two go together. They're, they're symbiotic, and we can talk about that. So this is not a new problem, but it is a newly urgent problem because, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, the drift of American life is particularly strong. It's a vicious current. It's quiet. It's invisible. But it is strong whisking us towards isolation. So if you do nothing else in our modern moment, you're going to be stuck in that lonely place, or you're going to be drawn away from that communal place. And that's why I'd say, okay, this has always been an enduring spiritual truth, but it is a newly urgent truth for the church to address. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. And um, I mean, certainly there's this current of individualism that <clears throat> we have um, 
sort of imbibed now that when we think about what is good for us, we think it's uh, sort of self-determination. Um, you talk about the idea of covenant friendship in your book, and I'd love to explore that for a little bit with you because uh, covenant is such a great word, and that sometimes I joke that unless you've bought a house in an HOA recently, you may have <laughs> used the word covenant in a That's long, right, long yeah. time. Uh, it, it's such a thoroughly biblical Old Testament word. And yet for a lot of Christians, I think that it, it doesn't, we don't know exactly what that means. Um, how, how, do, how do you just explain how, like, how, how are you thinking about covenant? How, why, why is covenant friendship a helpful concept instead of just right. friendship? Yeah. So it's funny. I'm a business lawyer and yeah. <laughs> I use the word covenant all the time. Right. Yep. And so probably, <laughs> and it's, it's real, it's a real live uh, legal function of so many things that you do and you don't necessarily know it, but you make covenants and credit card contracts. You certainly make covenants and home purchases. You make covenants and terms of use all, all the time we're covenanting to each other. And of course, if you're a seminary student or a, you know, a student of the Bible, you'll know, Oh, this God makes covenants to us. So this is a, this is a way that I, I think um, because it's a way that the Bible thinks. And, but it's so useful because it's this basic idea that everybody is familiar with once they stop to think about it, that the promises change the world, right? Promises change things because they create islands of possibility and certainty in an otherwise, you know, chaotic future. This is why, the, you know, we could talk about this all day in marriage, right? I mean, it's an incredible thing that we say for better, for worse, for richer, or poorer, till death do us part. Um, not because we always keep it, but because we create a possibility of intention in the future. G.K. Chesterton, I think, wrote that when we make a promise, we make an appointment with our future selves, which is a delightful way of putting it. Um, God is the one who does this to us. And my idea of covenant friendship is, one, to say it takes work to create real friendship. It takes actually a, a kind of promising and we could, I, there's a whole chapter I have on covenant and promising, but really the concept I'm trying to get at, which I think is really important, is that friendship is a holy and sacred thing when we model it after Jesus. And now friend has suffered a lot of dilution in terms of its meaning in the past century, particularly with Facebook. Now it's a verb. You know, I don't know. I'm not trying to throw shade on Facebook. There's all kinds of ways that we've lost the, the significance of the word friendship. So I introduced covenant friendship to kind of distinguish exactly what I'm talking about. And that is that I'm talking about a relationship that like we just talked about in Genesis 2, knows you fully and covenants to stick around and love you anyway. And that is not something that simply happens. That's, that's what happens in our best of relationships. I mean, anybody knows that a great friend is somebody who sees you at your worst, they know all your bad jokes, and they, for some reason, like you anyway. You know, they keep hanging out anyway. They keep inviting you over anyway. And those are the beautiful moments in our lives where we think, oh my gosh, relationship is possible. Covenant friendship, I'd say, is that over time. And it's modeled after the idea that Jesus is the one who made covenant friends of us by saying, I know all your shame, I know all your sin, I, I'm, I know what's behind the fig leaf, I know what's behind the bushes, but I love you anyway, child, and I'm not leaving. That is my covenant to you. And in that way, covenant friendship is really just a relational, a 
a, a, a relational form of the gospel by saying we're going to act like Christ to one another. And in a world that's experiencing an epidemic of loneliness, you know, Bryce and Ashley, I can't think of a better way to bear the light of Christ to a lonely culture than by saying here we know people and here we love people and we covenant to do it tomorrow too. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of some of kind of Kurt Thompson's language um, when he's talking about, you know, certain sort of intentional communities um, and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, that there's boundaries and that there's, you know, times and places and rituals and liturgies almost of these sorts of intentional friendship communities that he talks about. Um, And so as we think about what you've just said, and we think about someone like Kurt Thompson um, in modeling a lot of that in a, you know, neuro theological sort of framework, Mm -hmm. given those two realities, and then given the fact that most of us are, you know, driving children around for various activities, we may or may not know our neighbors, even in the church, we use often community groups as just a way to feel connected, but but the level of relationship is pretty shallow. How do we move from some of our very shallow relationships that we might have to something that you're talking about there about being fully known, um, cared for, loved, seen, um, accepted, mm-hmm. even amidst yeah. our deep, dark stuff. Yeah. The, I would suggest a paradigm of arts and habits, which is what I lay out in made for people as in there's some parts of relationship that are just they're arts, right? You know, no, no friend is a habit. <laughs> you don't just sort of show up. And I'm somebody who loves to write about habits, right? And, and there are habits that keep relationships close. But to, to a lot of extent, this stuff is, is an art too. So as, as I answer that question, I just want people to think of the play back between some things need to be, you know, worked into repetition in your schedule, but other things are ways of relating that we develop over time. And I give in the book 10, you know, arts and habits from vulnerability to honesty, covenant, promising, thinking about geography, scheduling, all this stuff that people can look at long form. But the simple answer to that, Ashley, is I would say showing up and speaking up are the two key things that is where you start. And so showing up is the idea of scheduling. And that is this is very habit driven, right? It's the idea that the current of American life is to become busier, wealthier people who used to have friends because <laughs> our schedule gets claimed by things that are our culture. And then we start to assume are important. And we often stop going to that small group or we stop doing that hangout on the weekend or we, or we fall off from inviting that friend over. We don't have time to go to church anymore or things like this. And, and, and you name it. Um, many people, get to their, I don't know, probably mid thirties. And they look back and they think, Oh, I used to have friends. Like when I was in college, you know, that was a time where people were funneling you into a communal schedule. And what I want to encourage people with is that friendship does not actually take a ton of time in your schedule. And this is good news, right? Anything else that's so essential to spirituality or physical health, you have to do all the time. Like you have to eat all the time. You have to sleep every night many hours, hopefully. You have to parent and work all the time. Unfortunately, these things take a lot of time. But but friendship, I encourage people, back to that habit I mentioned at the beginning, really an hour a week will change your whole life. And that might be 
a Saturday morning coffee with that friend, or that might be a small group. That might be um, a church community accountability group, a recovery group, a gym group. It could be all kinds of things. But that idea of saying, where in my schedule do I make it a habit to show up? I want to tell you that is actually not that hard, but it will change your life. <laughs> okay, so that's showing up. Number two is, is speaking up. And this is much more the art of vulnerability because this, is, this can't just be a habit. This is the hard part of saying it's easy for us to live behind the fig leaves. It's easy to show up tons of places and lives by habits and just hide. You can do that in church pews. You can do that in small groups. You can, you can do it in lots of places. Recovery groups are hard to do it in because those are places where we're very careful to tell the truth and we have liturgies for it. Hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm alcoholic or hi, you know, you, you identify we're here to take off the fig leaves. And I think getting, um, ge getting our brothers and sisters to think that is a paradigm for life because we don't, we don't really understand, appreciate, or preach the gospel of Jesus until we realize that it is for forgiven sinners like us and we're all sinners. So why don't we talk like it? Why don't we actually own up to it and say our church meetings, our small groups should look a lot more like AA meetings than anything else. And that is the idea of speaking up. So the, the way that I see this in my life is, and I did this last night with my um, two close friends, Steve and Matt, we have an every other week front porch sit where we just sit down and catch up on life. But, but key, key to it happening is not just showing up. It's that we ask each other real questions and give real answers when we get there. And that changes everything that speaking up and showing up. And, and I feel such a grace from them because they'll ask me stuff if I don't just volunteer it. But through, through this rhythm of showing up and speaking up, I've become somebody who doesn't have secrets. And that is such a gift of friendship because otherwise I would carry so much that needs to be confessed. But in friendships, we've got people without secrets and it's a beautiful, beautiful gospel thing. It, it, it sounds to me, Justin, as you're talking, like one of the challenges in building friendships is kind of the, the culture piece of this. And, and that could be the culture of, you know, of a church or the culture of a neighborhood or something like that, because it's, it's one thing to sort of think of like, okay, I want to, I want to build friendships. And so I'm going to, you know, show up and speak up. But if, but if I'm not in a context where there are other people with those hopes and expectations and it could just heighten my sense of loneliness. And, um, I, I kind of laughed when you, you know, you respond to my question about covenant by saying, well, I'm a lawyer. I think about covenants all the time. Um, but there are certain covenantal relationships like signing a contract that, that are very, it's very clear when you're entering into that. Yes. Um, yes and when right. you're getting married, you're entering a covenant relationship, but you go through a wedding ceremony, which is about initiating, making a covenant. Uh, it's a lot murkier when it comes to friendship. I think it would That's be right. really weird That's to right. say like, Hey, Justin, like we had this great podcast conversation. Do you want to be like a covenant friend with me? And if so, <laughs> could you sign this contract? <laughs> right? Yes. yes. Um, so uh, how do we, how do we think about, um, 
like we live in this culture where everybody's busy. Everybody's got, you know, sort of no margin in your life. Maybe we experience the, the loneliness. And yet if I'm the one kind of guy that shows up in my neighborhood, in my church, at my kids' schools, wherever I interact with other adults as the one who's looking to make friends mm. that could, could sort of go unreciprocated for a long time and just feel yes. like, man, this is tough. Yes. Well, that's absolutely a risk, but, but Bryce, I would say <laughs> that's the right kind of weird. In fact, I would, I would actually, I think I'd take a page out of Russell Moore's book here. I think one of his slogans for, years ago was keep Christianity weird. You know, it was kind of based off the, uh, the Austin <laughs> sticker. And, and honestly, my wife puts this well, she says, we need to get more comfortable with being awkward because initiating deep relationships does feel weird and awkward at the time. Um, so actually I'll tell, I'll tell a story from my, uh, I, I actually opened the book with this story. This is a story that forever changed my life. I, I was in high school. Um, and I was a total loner because I just moved to Richmond and, and gone to high school. My dad was a politician, so everybody knew about me, but I didn't know anybody else. And everything about life was hard my first year of being in high school. And I just thought that anxiety, that depression was just baked into life. Like this is what it feels like to be in a you know mature social environment until one day a conversation at the lockers changed my life. And I'd started to get to know this friend Steve at a youth retreat of all things where we bonded over skateboarding and hacky sacks and other things that were very 1990s. And, but one day at the lockers, Steve, we think it was him. We can't actually can't remember who said it. Just said out of the blue, do you want to be best friends? <laughs> and I responded as if it was a question on, you know, whether we'd like to go out for lunch or Slurpees or something. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And like, that was that. And it was, <laughs> you know, if you watch Wes Anderson movies, right, where everybody just says what they think all the time, um, it's very weird, but it's very delightful in some ways because we just, we say, hey, would you like to be my friend? And um, so one, I say that kind of in jest because it was awkward and I'm not necessarily prescribing that for everybody, but in another real sense, my whole life changed in the wake of that conversation because friendship was articulated, albeit in an awkward manner, but friendship was articulated and my circumstances didn't change. High school is still high school, it's very hard, but I no longer face those high school circumstances alone. I faced them beside a friend and everything about them started to shift. And ever since, you know, I've, I've thought, I, I felt like I'm made for this, right? Which is why this book is titled Made for People. And one of the things that I encourage people to think about a little more is being brave enough to signal covenant in their conversation. And you, obviously you want to be figure out the right way to do this, but I've seen it in, in as small ways of people saying, Hey, I've really enjoyed our conversations. Would you like to get coffee? You know, just making that next intentional step or, Hey, I've so enjoyed getting to know you. Would you be interested in, maybe meeting up once a month or something like that. Now, these questions are hard, right? Because people might say, I don't have time or no or something like that. Um, and then questions that, you know, go further along the lines of, of saying, this is a, like, this this relationship has changed my life. I mean, I want to, like, we should talk about, and one of the things I hope to offer in this book made for people is a language of covenant friendship so people can say uh, in, in, a, in a not weird way, 
hey, I, I sort of think of this as a covenant friendship. We should, you know, if you're willing, lean into that. But these are ways of saying words change the future. You know, we talk about promises change the future. Words signal these kinds of promises. God made the world with words and words reshape relationships. So I actually do think we should, you know, be a little bit more awkward in the right direction, but I will acknowledge, you know, Bryce, one of the hard truths that you raise about this is that it never is just one person. It takes two people to have a friendship and there is always risk of it being unreciprocated, of getting hurt, and it means it's always going to require forgiveness. It's always going to require require looking to Jesus as your real covenant friend to make you brave enough to do that. And we can talk about all the, the harms and the dangers, but I'll just leave it at that for now, that it's, it's not going to fix you. It's only that covenant friendship with Jesus should make you the kind of person who goes out looking for other covenant friendships. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Um, I'd like to just zoom out a little bit. You know, I think you talk about um, early on in the book, you write, when we understand Jesus's life as an act of friendship, that it changes from being a peripheral good to a central good. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you mean, particularly Help us understand how friendship is then part of like a larger project about the common good. Because I think a lot of times we view friendships or individual friendships as like, this is going to do something for me. We view it primarily selfishly um, or we just even view it primarily individually. Right. You know, the two of us have a great friendship um, or, you know, we really understand one another. So help us understand how good friendships are actually contributing, contributing to like the social fabric, the common good that way okay yeah so so first how it moves from periphery to central and then how that is actually an outward movement well wow, i really i really like this question because i think one of the reasons that we are in the condition we're in in modern america is that we do look at friendship as a luxury or or a not it's not a necessity which is why the loneliness statistics are so startling because they're saying to us, no, friendship is not something you do later when you have time and everything else about survival is going well. It's something you need for surviving. Even C.S. Lewis, who probably has the best writing on friendship in the last century, has a funny sentence where he says um, something along the lines of, you know, friendship like art and philosophy is unnecessary. You know, it, it 
adds value to survival, but it's not necessary for surviving, which is a wonderful sentence and it gets at the truth, but he's actually technically wrong. You know, it, friendship is necessary for surviving. And, and I want to, to speak to the church and say that, you know, when we think about our lives, we should think about friendship as the kind of spiritual discipline with the centrality and the weight of prayer or quiet times or church involvement, because what we're fundamentally talking about is whether we do life with God alone, which is not good according to God in Genesis, or whether we do life alongside other people. And that is not something you can wait for tomorrow on. I mean, I talked to my last book was on parenting. I talked to parents all the time who, you know, they're thinking, what I've, what I've got to figure out right now is my busy schedule with my kids, or what I've got to figure out is my spouse and I's, you know, arguments or my mental illness, something. And I, and I want to tell them, no, what you need to do is walk in that busy season alongside a friend. What you need to do is walk through that mental illness with a friend, because that's primary. That's how you're going to fix it. So moving it from the periphery to primary, and then it, it is for our good. I mean, we are made for people, but Ashley, I think the beautiful thing about friendship is that when we follow Jesus's call to covenant friendship, we're making a movement like the Trinity makes, which is fundamentally outward. The Trinity, at great cost, invites the world in through sacrifice, right? Through the sacrifice of Jesus. And so no covenant friendship, no Christian view of friendship can be exclusive and still be a Christian view of friendship. It just can't, right? It's It, it might... Um, it might love others by saying, Hey, I need to have this private conversation with you. But that's different than saying, I've got this friend already, so I don't have time for you. You know, and and I I have stories of messing this up big time and ways that I've I've hurt people and, and ways that the Lord has taught us and my friends how to maintain an outward posture, which comes with a lot of habits about inviting people in and putting extra chairs at the table, or even learning how to posture yourself in a room where you talk you know, angular instead of face to face, which is very helpful for inviting people into conversation. But, but fundamentally, we should see friendship as a way of evangelism. Because in our modern moment in America, I mean, it's apologetics are hard, like arguing somebody into the faith is, is not happening in our current climate. Right? <laughs> no, no. And, and I know that like in the 60s and 70s, this was right. Yeah. This was viable. evidence that great. demands yeah. a verdict, right? Yeah, yes. have your and details. Not, it's mind yeah. blowing. It's mind blowing when you th- read about like Francis Schaeffer and like yeah. college students just dropping by and listening to his it is, arguments yes. and being one to Christ. You know, it's like I can't. It's imagine. amazing, and and you know, this is understandable. Um, it takes some time, but and we're not going to like get really distracted. But th- that was a time when more significant and more wide first principles were shared. So you, you had more shared vocabulary, you had more shared values, and you could argue um, or, or discuss from those perspectives. Now, now is a time where the secularism, the atheism we experience in America is not a reasoned argument. It's better described as a mood. It's a contagious, sticky um, atmosphere. And anybody you know, who's emotionally mature, at least even a little bit, knows that you, you, can't, um, you can't argue someone out of a mood. You have to come to them with a presence, right? You're never going to change a mood with an argument. You have to come at it with a presence. Relationships are exactly that. When when people sit at the table of a Christian, that is way more evangelistic in its power than it is to put up a sign in your front yard 
Or when you invite a non-believer to a fire pit in your backyard with some other Christian friends, and you actually invite this person in, you talk and you hear about their work struggles or their parenting struggles, and, you, and they get a glimpse of this beautiful thing called community. That is what Madeline Lingle, I think, is talking about when she says we, we win people to Christ not by loudly discrediting not by loudly discrediting what they believe, but by showing them a light so lovely that they long to know with all their hearts the source of it. And that's the idea of, I think, putting relationship on display. You can't do that until you do it. But know that when you do it, you are not being me first. I need to solve my problem, my oxygen mask first. No, you're doing something that puts the gospel on display to people around you. And that's a holy and good thing. I love this idea that you talk about friendship as evangelism and, and friendship as the hermeneutic of the gospel, um, you know, which is kind of a, I don't know if you were intending this, but this allusion to like Leslie Newbegin talking about the congregation as the hermeneutic of the gospel. But one of the things that, I mean, I think what's happening, even going back to like Genesis one and two, God creating Adam and Eve um, in his own image is God is saying that that part of the way that that He has designed human beings is to love uh, one another across difference, and I think that one of the huge problems we see all over the place, oh my in gosh, yes, culture, is I can only love, respect, be with people who are exactly like me, and part of what you're talking about is the beauty of the gospel shining. Not in saying like the reason we're such good friends is because we share everything in common, but actually because we're able to, because we're not exactly like one another. That's, it's essential. It's essential right now. Um, one, because it raises the, the glory of God above other things and says that our most common, our fundamental unity here is our posture as sinners redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ, not as uh, intellectually correct people who happen to agree on vaccines or presidential elections or, you know, stances on Israel and Palestine, you know, those are important things. But if we can't be friends with people across difference, theological differences, political differences, um, scientific differences, then we've lost something fundamental to our spirituality and i i i think woe woe to us woe to the culture that sacrifices friendship in favor of political affiliation or something else and and i and i'll testify when i sit down for family lunch (laughs) or when i go to a fire pit with my friends i am at tables and around fires with people who disagree on vaccines who disagree on presidential politics uh, who disagree on on racist issues like we got, we got some sides of the spectrum um, there, and it's awesome. I mean, it's it's you know it's not necessarily easy. Sometimes you tiptoe around some topics, or you have to talk to somebody because you made a comment that they don't agree with. But but the idea that we can talk about and land on different sides of a presidential vote passionately, and yet say, "Love you, brother." It was great, it was great to argue with you. Um, and, and, and I, can, I can respect you and, and love you as a redeemed center. I, that, we, we, we must have it. We, and we must show it off in church. I think one of the best things churches can be is politically diverse. And, and, and 
amongst other kinds of diversity. So I couldn't emphasize it enough. And friendship, I think, you know, I don't want to say something that's like, but what we need right now, the only thing we need. But 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 if you read people like David Brooks or Arthur Brooks or writers in the Atlantic, um, they will they will say from a secular perspective that the reason we are so politically polarized is because we have lost the art of community and friendship. And so their words, not mine, this is a way I believe the church could say, we actually happen to have some thoughts on that. We could help with that. We, we, we could model that for the world. And wherever, speaking of Leslie Newbegin, I think wherever you see the world longing something, this is, this is his posture of missiology, where, where you see the world longing for something and you say, that's a good goal. We agree. Let me show you how the gospel gets you there. That's what we can do evangelistically with loneliness and friendship right there and say, we agree. This is a problem that we were falling apart. Here's how we think you get there. And that's that's a missiological move that actually allows you to be in conversation with your neighbors. And I think the friendship is at the heart of that. Let, let me ask about the kind of the tech question here, because I think one of the things that, that uh, you know, e- even referencing David Brooks and others uh, kind of point out that... Um, like tech feels like it's it's shifted or at least changed the possible trajectories here where we no longer need to be physically proximate to find people that we agree with and and so we can go on or <laughs> i'm trying to like uh tiptoe around this but the 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 crude way to say this is like anybody can find you know, like a dozen weirdos on the internet that agree with him on everything, <laughs> right? Um, how, how, but, but also we live in a world where we all have smartphones in our pockets all the time and that's, that's not going away. And so how, how do we kind of navigate and wrestle through just what tech do, is doing to our relationships? Uh, it opens up a lot of possibilities and yet it also makes it potentially um, you know, we have to be more intentional to, to, to seek out those uh, covenant friendships. Yes. I think acknowledging its good and its harm is, is the way forward. And I strongly agree with both of those. So I think they're fundamentally, you know, being people who create technology is a good thing and it's good. Some of my friends would really disagree with this, by the way, speaking of things we disagree with. I think it's fundamentally good that the internet exists and that smartphones exist. Uh, literally, some of my <laughs> friends would be like, I can't believe you said that. Um, because we create and we're meant to create. Now, we can, we can create things that push us in wrong ways. And we've done a lot of that. We've created devices that are pushing us in wrong ways. So I don't think it's bad that they exist, but we need, we need to do better and how we program them, about how the algorithms work, and about many other things. I think that's a major, major conversation. But my simple sort of like pared down metaphor for this is is meals and snacks. And I think if you think about technological interactions as snacks and embodied relationships as meals, this will get you very far, at least in our current decade, okay? Because Everybody knows what happens to your body when you just eat snacks. You, you will wither and you actually get very sick and possibly even die because you have the feeling of being full while coming away completely unnourished. Um, technological 
technologically mediated relationships are like snacks in that they give us the feeling of being liked or followed or that we're leading or that we're influencing without being nourished by the meaningfulness that comes with an embodied relationship and all the intangibles of saying, do I actually want to be following this kind of person? Even though I agree with that one thing he or she said, or what is the feedback I'm getting when I say this thing, the body language and the emotion and the touch and all these things. That is when I say we're made for people, that's what I'm saying we're made for because you can't be vulnerable with somebody really completely. Um, until you're present with them. And you can't love until you're present with people. So presence is part of the meal of embodied relationships. But but I want to say that and still acknowledge the good. I mean, like, I love Oreos. I love guacamole. <laughs> I just don't live off them, right? right I mean, right. they're good. Oreos are good in that they're just an exquisitely, speaking <laughs> of technology, I don't know how they like make these ingredients. It's just an exquisite flavor. Yeah. Right? It's a delight. And so is a good Instagram post. Like, it's a delight. Like, it's, that's great. And, uh, you know, guacamole is like nourishing. It should be the only thing you eat. And so is a text message chain with a good friend. It really can be a place of you're seeing the pictures of their kids or you're, or you're getting prayer requests and all those things. But, I mean, don't eat Oreos and guacamole as your, as your diet. Don't do that. You need to make sure that you're getting together with 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 people to to round not just round that out but really create the foundation of who you of who you are and so i don't want to i don't want to discourage people i think you need a, a rule of life you need common habits is what the common rule is about in your approach to technology but you don't throw it out the window there's a lot of great things about technology just stick with the embodied meals of friendship i, I recommend the technology of fire sat around a fire pit with my two friends last night and a meal of nourishing relationship happened you, you, the smartphone will never hold a candle to the flame. <laughs> There's a lot of metaphors going on in there, but <laughs> fire is there. That's good. Um, you know, I'd love to just think briefly about some of the pain, obviously, as we go further along in relationships, as we, you know, over the last 10 years and increased polarization in the U.S., um, people have lost a lot of friendships. Um, as you were saying, there's a lot of risk um, and there's a lot of pain. And you differentiate between losing and leaving friendships that one way is natural um, and the other is the product of the fall and that forgiveness is um, so much a part of friendship. What does that look like? Um, yeah, for folks maybe who are who have been burnt um, by friendship um, what does it look like to forgive? What does it look like to move towards reconciliation? What does it look like to try again um, in in friendship loss or having been left? Yeah, this is where we have to look to Jesus because he is the one who opens up the entire possibility of us relating to each other on this level because of his forgiveness of us, um, his willingness to take the pain in order to enter into relationship with us is a signal that you, if you can't accept forgiveness or if you can't give forgiveness, then you can't do friendship. So you can't have a friendship without forgiveness because after all, we are sinners. We will hurt each other. Uh, we, we will disappoint each other. We will let each other down. And I think the beauty of the gospel is that it, it opens the door past a grievance. Like suddenly grievances or problems or hurt or shame doesn't have to be the end of relationship. It can actually be the pathway to deeper relationship. And that is worth 
pondering, like if you're listening to this podcast, pause it for a second and just think about that. Because that is a paradigm shift of the modern moment where problems are the end of relationships. Somebody is now toxic or you have to cancel them or they're basically just a disposable cup. Like, okay, I need to go find a new one. And that is a way to walk through life alone. But, and I'm not saying this isn't hard, right? Anything worth doing is hard. And, and I speak from, unfortunately, from experience. I have friends, I'm not going to name them, they're in my mind. We are no longer friends because of hurt or disagreement. And I think of two, two things, Ashley. One, um, I take a lot, a lot of hope in the kingdom. A lot, a lot of hope in this vision that I will be able to walk up to this friend again. And all that is between us will have melted away in the glory of forgiveness in hereafter. And we can shake hands and laugh together again. <laughs> and we can't figure it out right now. Like I'm getting sad. Yeah, yeah, we can't, we yeah. can't figure it out <laughs> right now. I'm getting all teary. <laughs> no. <laughs> I yeah. don't know why I can't figure it out with this person. We've tried and tried and tried. And now we just don't talk anymore. But but one day the that will be made untrue. And so that is a great hope of friendship. And in the meantime, a practice of that is is to learn to forgive where you can. And and knowing that, you know, there's grace for you. You can't always do it. There's some people who do become too too dangerous or too harmful or too addicted to something and you need to walk away and it's sad but but most times it's figuring out how do i be a little bit more like jesus and say i'll I'll take the pain here i don't have to be right let's just try to move back towards relationship rather than away and it obviously requires maturity to know the difference between when you ought to leave and when you ought to forgive really it requires fellowship and counsel of other people too but i think generally in our modern moment we should probably look to jesus and be a little bit more like him and his willingness to walk into pain for the sake of relationship. Amen. Wow. This is, um, this has been so great. I wish we could keep talking. <laughs> I know for uh, the sake of everybody's time, we need to wrap well, this up. This has here. been really nice, but maybe we should be covenant friends. I, wish, <laughs> you know, we should, I, I feel like we should ask in this by just saying, Justin, I'll draw, draw up a document. Anywhere close my, to each other. My friend? <laughs> Wow. Um, well, you know, it doesn't have to be a contract signed in blood, but I'm in favor of it. You know, if anybody's doing that out there, I'll tip my hat. That's right. You. But we'll do it over tech, you know, like from, yeah. from a distance. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, Justin, yeah. thanks so much for uh, taking time to talk with us today. This has been uh, both, I, I think, just a very deep um, relationship. I mean, in terms of the, the foundations of friendship and relationships rooted in who the triune God is and how our relationships point us to the reality of the gospel. And yet also just so incredibly practical that um, we're, we're all dealing with this stuff every day. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us and for your insights. I really appreciate you. Yeah, you're so welcome. I appreciate you all having me on. What a good conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It is edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org.